This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm so pleased to introduce my guest, Richard J. Powell. Rick Powell is the John Spencer Bassett Professor of Art and Art History at Duke University. His numerous books include Black Art, A Cultural History, and Cutting a Figure, Fashioning Black Portraiture. His newest book, Just Out, is Going There, Black Visual Satire, the first deep and sustained look at this topic, which necessarily raises important questions about the social power of art. The book is a result of Yale University Press's partnership with Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research, which, through its Richard D. Cohen lectures on African and African-American art, gives senior scholars a forum in which to explore the ways that art has shaped the landscape of African diasporic history, society, and thought. Rick, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us about your new book. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you to talk a little bit about how Black visual satire both fits into and occupies a unique space within the long history of satire. Well, Jessica, that's actually a, quite an interesting question, because as your question suggests, it does fit and it's also kind of has its own life. Um, and so I would best answer that question by saying, while well, the focus of going there, Black visual satire, are modern and contemporary artworks. In other words, works produced in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Um, I argue in the book that these works, as well as um, works that were created just before that, and I'm thinking about um, early to mid 20th century masters like Archibald Motley and Palmer Hayden and Oliver Harrington, um, none of these works can really be understood without considering an even earlier history. Um, and that's um, from the canonical um, works of people like Hogarth and Goya and Daumier to um, African-American blackface minstrels of the 1870s and afterwards. So, so this book is in, it really attempts to take in um, a broader, a very, very broad history of visual satire. And, and at a very early but crucial moment in the text, it, 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 it pauses and said, well, how do we think about this in relationship to African-Americans, to, to, to something that we might call black visual satire? And you've actually coined a new um, useful term in the book, satiracy, which applies broadly and specifically to the, the works and the artists that you discuss in your book. <clears throat> uh, can you explain what you mean by satiracy? Well, I was thinking about um, um, satirical literacy. <laughs> and uh, and I thought it was, that's, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so I thought it'd be easier to just kind of combine those um, words uh, to satiracy. And, uh, and I was thinking about basically how one, in order to understand satire, one really needs to um, have a, a real kind of uh, grasp of it. And therefore, I was thinking about people, comparable literary critics who have written about cultural literacy, like uh, E.D. Hirsch. And, 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 and in those great books that he does on, on cultural literacy, he goes to the roll call of, of the things that one should know in order to be considered culturally literate. And so when I use the term satiracy, 
I was really thinking about, you know, what are the things um, in the realm of satire that one needs to kind of have a grasp on in order to understand satire. Um, and, 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 and there are particular kind of threads that, that, that um, I discuss in this text, particularly as related to something that might be called black visual satire, that, that uh, in order to understand it, there, there are a whole set of issues, um, there are a whole set of kind of cultural um, uh, uh, things that, that, that occur prior to even engaging with um, that, um, that, 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 that material. And uh, so, so that's kind of what really kind of got this this project rolling, so to speak. And you, I, I, one of these threads, I, I think, is you discussed three key elements of satire. So there are three elements that um, I would argue really make um, it possible to even think about black visual satire. And the first element has to do with the the who the who the satirist is. Um, clearly, uh, the artist is intrinsic to, to facilitating the artwork's meaning. And, uh, and, and more importantly, one has to be aware of who the artist is. And in this case, that that artist is a Black artist, because that artist being a Black artist really places the satire in total context. And I'll talk about context in a few minutes. The other issue that I think is a part of this has to do with the object or the target of, of derision. And in many instances, it's the status quo, it's institutions and their overarching systems. Um, and we can include within those um, institutions um, systemic racism, which, which can be and frequently is a target of, of critique by black visual satirists. And then finally, people. Um, people whose moral shortcomings or or perceived crimes against humanity or society merit calling out and and censuring. And then finally, I think the other key element that that really makes all of this come together has to do with audiences, has to do with the the consumers, the recipients um, of 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 the satire, and their ability to understand, appreciate, and 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 process. Um, what what's coming to them as not something that is um, um, on the surface what it is, but actually has layers of meaning and and signification. Right. You talk about visual satire as necessarily offering a kind of interpretive puzzle. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I I, I channel uh, Stanley Fish's um, wonderful writings um, on Milton there, where he talks about uh, you know kind of communities of understanding and appreciation. And uh, in my book, I have a great photograph from um, the Bud Billiken Parade in in Chicago in the 1940s, where um, the artist Wayne Miller focuses on the audience. And you look at the audience looking at the parade, and we see them fascinated, mesmerized, zeroing in, and in their own kind of internal way. And we can see this on their expressions, discerning and critiquing what they're seeing. So one of the things that's that's curious to me in this context, very interesting to me, is that... um, that the satirist may have a particular audience in mind with a, any particular example of satire. And then what happens when someone who may not be specifically part of that audience sees and wants to interpret the satire and, and what happens when that goes haywire, even, even if there's a, you know, a, a good faith effort on the part of someone to, to get it, if they just 
can't because there's, you know, a difference in, you know, cr chronology that happened, you know, 50 years ago and they weren't there and they can't understand or any number of other cultural differences. How, how, would, how do you help parse that question? Well, it's a tough um, uh situation and and when you're when you were describing it Jessica I was thinking about this um the situation now with uh um American museums and a British museum around the art of Philip Guston we know that Philip Guston was um was against racism we know that Philip Guston was um was was very much uh, on the side of, of 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 breaking down the barriers of racism but then he does these amazing and um, quite provocative uh, images uh, starting in the late 1960s of Klansmen. And, and it's clear that so many people right now in the art world are, are struggling with these. And I find it fascinating because these are not new pieces. They've been around for quite a while. And, and many of us in the art world know Philip Guston's past. And yet, as these works come to us in 2020, it's clear that those messages are not coming through the way um, perhaps he intended them to, or perhaps the way these institutions assumed people would understand them. So, so this is a clear example of how satire really does need help or needs an audience and needs a context and needs the identity of the artist present and accounted for, needs the artist's voice, perhaps, to help make sense um, for the public. And even there, it's still a hurdle. Right. And one of the most complicated genres you discuss is minstrelsy and the deployment of blackface or whiteface. Um, what what are the things that make this in particular so complicated, even within a framework in which none of the visuals is uncomplicated, really? Well, uh, I, I devote a whole chapter to to minstrelsy. Uh, mm -hmm. And I did that because uh, it really requires um verbiage to, to unpack and and histories and narratives to make sense of. Um, and uh, and part of the complication here, and we, we haven't quite talked about this, is that so many people often confuse um, stereotypes and and mm. for, with with satire. And I and, and that's something that I go to great lengths to try to to unpack and take apart. But back to minstrelsy, um, it, it 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 does traffic in stereotypes. There's no question about it. When we think about um, Dan Rice in the in the 1830s, you know, putting black paint on his face and 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 pretending or acting out in a way that evokes black bodies and black movements. I mean, it was derisive and it was it was it was racist and it was extremely popular. So popular that within several decades, minstrelsy is something that people are doing the world over. But it's even more complicated than that, Jessica, because we can go back to the 17th century and the 18th century in Europe, where there is what we call the Commedia dell'arte performances. These these um, rote performances that were done, you know, in villages all throughout Europe that have these black characters like Harlequin and these white characters like Pioret. And 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 they and and they play out certain kinds of broad characterizations of people in class, in classes, and in in various hierarchies of society. I'm, I'm giving you all that background because when we get to the 20th century and we begin to see how embedded this culture and this and and minstrelsy is in American life, whether it's in advertisements, um, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, or whether it's on in movies like um, uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, it, we're talking about an incredible hurdle to overcome. And yet, 
We find black artists beginning in the 1870s to use blackface minstrelsy as a form of art making. But of course, what complicates that is that we have the constitutive irony of black men pretending to be white men, pretending to be stereotypically black. But you also have performances by these black um, minstrels or these black blackface minstrels um, that incorporate um, musical sophistication skillful dancing and dramatic elements that raise the ante on blackface minstrelsy's inauthentic representations. Again, I know I've, I've given you multiple layers here, but that's kind of what we're working with, so much so by the time we get to the 1960s and 1970s, um, particularly in that era, we find a whole set of artists who are utilizing those um, those those the trappings of, of minstrelsy and and using them to an effect in order to kind of critique um, racism to critique um, the stereotype and I'm thinking about artists like Jeff Donaldson I'm thinking about playwrights like Amiri Baraka I'm I'm also thinking about filmmakers like Melvin Van Peebles and Brian De Palma and then it goes further into um, the the 20th century with artists like David Hammonds and Howardina Pendel and and even to this contemporary period with artists like uh, Carol Walker and and Beverly McKeever so this is this is this is a long and complicated history that I've tried to address and hopefully uh, make sense of. Yeah, well, let's let's pick up one of those examples you mentioned, and that is the the Aunt Jemima image, which wound up in the news this summer when um, Quaker Oats officially uh, retired that image from their packaging and their marketing. You actually had a an op ed piece in the L.A. Times in early summer about that in particular, and fans of Saturday Night Live may know <laughs> that just this past weekend uh, there was a skit in which Maya Rudolph plays Aunt Jemima and is objecting to, uh, to being fired. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, what, so what, what, what about, what, what is the potency of the Aunt Jemima image and what, what are the ways that, that she has been used in, um, in artworks over decades? Well, well, first of all, I, I, I'd have to say that, um, in my in my uh, editorial, my, my my the upshot of the editorial is I say that she has been retired, but she's still here, mm. and she's still here because of the time frame that I just described to you. That that these are tropes that have been kind of incorporated, deeply incorporated into uh, into the American psyche, you know, since the, the especially since the late 19th century. So it's it's um, you can imagine something that that core to um, Americans concepts of self is going to be hard to kind of eradicate. But but what I what I do in the book is I, I, I talk about how, again, artists um, utilize this this icon or this trope, and they find really, really creative ways of flipping it. And I'm thinking about artists in particular like Betty Saar, really, really important um, collage artist based in Los Angeles who does the liberation of Aunt Jemima, which shows one of these stereotypic um, um, uh, cookie jars um, or figures. And she incorporates into her little collage all sorts of elements of that deal with black power, that deal with um, that deal with, um, you know, the liberation of black people um, in this kind of turbulent moment of the late 1960s. And and I like uh, how Lucy Lepard describes um, the liberation of Aunt Jemima as having almost a homeopathic quality, taking this negative image and turning it around and making 
making it into something that might potentially be restorative. And of course, what's surreal about this is that I mentioned Betty Saar, but there's literally a litany of artists, in particular beginning in the 1960s, but going all the way up to even an artist like Carol Walker. I'm thinking about her piece of subtlety, which she did uh, in 2014 uh, in the uh, Domino um, uh, Sugar Factory um, uh, um, building that was about to be demolished in Brooklyn and and, and does this huge <laughs> Aunt Jemima um, sphinx mm-hmm. made out of sugar. And, uh, and, and it became the event of the art world uh, in the summer of 2014. So as I said in my editorial, um, eyes in town, honey, is the, is the quotation from, um, from the advertisement. And it really resonates because this is an image that for all of its negativity has function uh, for many artists as an antidote against racism. Yeah, you had really interesting things to say, actually, about Kara Walker's uh, Aunt Jemima Sphinx. Can you uh, describe the piece a little bit more and and share your thoughts on it? Yes. Well, first of all, it's it, it, it was incredibly big and it, it, it filled the interior of the main space of of this domino um, uh, uh, sugar factory. And it and it and it 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 it, it embraces the shape of a sphinx. In other words, this this kind of half kneeling, half kind of um, a repose figure. Um, and and except that in this case, it is it's clearly an image of Aunt Jemima with the bandana and uh, and the kind of strange expression on her face. And what was also interesting is that she surrounded it with these little figures that were made out of kind of a brown sugar molasses. Um, version of sugar uh, that were these stereotypic images that one might find uh, in um, in shops that 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 um, uh, refer to plantation workers, um, um, little black boys carrying um, uh, bananas, little black boys um, you know carrying baskets on their heads, and 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 of course the title of the piece is is the ultimate surreal title. Um, I have to read it because I couldn't remember it. <laughs> A subtlety. Or the marvelous Sugar Baby, an homage to the unpaid and overworked artisans who have refined our sweet tastes from the cane fields to the kitchens of the New World on the occasion of the demolition of the Domino Sugar Refining Plant. Um, But I argue that this is a piece that perhaps nods towards, you know, an inglorious history of sugar in the New World. But I also think it's a piece that is a critique of her censors, uh, because Carol Walker's an artist who has has faced and confronted um, since she emerges in the art world in the 1990s, um, all sorts of people who have questioned her work, who feel confused by her work, who challenge her imagery because it is artwork that is satirical and has all of these incredibly complicated layers um, that 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 make up what she creates. Yeah, I think her work uh, in particular gets at a a tension between two related ideas that you mentioned a little bit ago, that that is satire and stereotype. And I think it's easy to sort of think about satirical works as turning primarily on stereotype, but they are distinct. What how do you characterize the, the differences between those two? Well, I, I, I take my cues from um, the artist, Robert Colescott, who was the subject of my last chapter. He says, my work is more than a one-liner. 
And that really got me to thinking, because one could argue that that um, when we think about um, Aunt Jemima, when we think about um, the kind of um, blackface minstrelsy, that we're operating basically in a world that um, has a very short, um, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. it, it begins and ends with a kind of a unitary idea, a unitary idea of ridiculousness, a unitary idea of absurdity, uh, and, 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 and there's not much more there. And what I would argue is that uh, satire is a much more complicated thing. And um, just to kind of test myself, I, I did a little homework on my own, um, looking at um, some of the old dictionary definitions and the like, you know, of these, um, of these words satire and in particular stereotype. But what I began to realize is that when people talk about things like um, um, the stereotype, um, it, it, it's a word that, that really has to do with, again, the unitary, the singular, um, that, it, that it refers to printing technologies that utilize solid molds of composed type. It, 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 it's a fixed and it's an unchanging idea. And that's really what we're working with when we look at stereotypes. They, they, they don't really have a kind of a sophistication, a layeredness, and a complication. Whereas when we look at satire, we're actually kind of going back to those ancient and Roman, Roman and, and Greek term, terms, which have to do with medley and mixture and, and a critique that, that, that is often difficult and hard to contain. And and so I think that that when Colescott says it's more than a one liner and when we look at his work, we understand what he means, that while he may employ stereotype as one of the devices and tools for a critique, it doesn't end there. It's a much more complicated. It's a much more nuanced and 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 very, very interesting way of of of, of making um, a, a critical statement again against the institutions and the systems and even the individuals who, who, who in the eye of the satirist deserve to be called out. Yeah. And, and in terms of the critique and the social commentary, one of the interesting subtexts of your book are the intersections between them and politics. I mean, there's no fixed relationship here, but, um, you know, the alignment, you talk about the alignment of many black visual satirists with the political left at the beginning of the 20th century, shifting as we move toward the middle of the 20th century to a specifically black American political agenda that stood apart from many traditional political spectrums. Um, how is it important to understand that in the context of black visual satire? Well, uh, um, you're right that that I became really fascinated in this study, uh, um, and I think it really kind of grew out of my my chapter on the cartoonist um, Ali Harrington with the kind of merger of of satire and politics. And it's no surprise that some of the examples that I mention in my book, uh, artists like uh, Elizabeth Catlett, um, who um, was this amazing, important uh, sculptor and printmaker um, in the 1940s and 50s, well into the early 20th century when she dies. Uh, an artist like uh, John Wilson, uh, really, really committed 
um, um, socially engaged artists, that these are artists who who um, who were sympathetic to the politics on the left side, so to speak. Um, probably the artwork that I, I don't include in the book that perhaps epitomizes this kind of merger of satire and, and left politics would be an artist like Ernest Critchlow, who has a very famous cartoon that I include in my Black art book um, called Lovers that shows a picture of a Klansman assaulting a Black woman. Now, that's not something to laugh at or to make light of. But when he calls the image lovers, he is in some ways being ironic. He is being mocking of the idea of love and affection, particularly as um, as as was played out in the assaults against black women um, um, in the kind of pre-civil rights era. So, so those are the artists who who I, I I privilege with that kind of merger of political left and 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 um, satire. But the artist who I really park on um, in that regard is is um, is Oliver Harrington. Yeah, so let's talk about him. Um, his, one of the things that struck me as I read your chapter on him was the extremely long chronological sweep of his productivity. Um, and not only that, but how he moved around the world and continued to, um, you know, fire these salvos of, of uh, critique from wherever he was. Um, talk, tell, tell a little bit more about his, uh, his life and work. Well, uh, first of all, I would say that um, he was a cartoonist, and uh, but I would hope that that um, people wouldn't begin and end with um, that um, designation for him, because he was truly a world citizen and a real cultural and political activist, uh, born in the Bronx in 1912 of a of a Hungarian Jewish mother and a black father from North Carolina. Um, grew up in the Bronx and Harlem, um, studied in schools in, uh, in, in the New York area, um, was able to get jobs early on in his uh, life as a cartoonist. Uh, and uh, and, and the, the money from those early cartoons allowed him to go to Yale University uh, in the late 1930s. And, and after Yale, he moves into these amazing circles um, I, I was just thinking about him uh, in preparation for our conversation today, and it dawned on me that this is someone, he's like, where's Waldo? I mean, <laughs> in the sense that between the, the 30s and his death in 1995, he has interactions with almost like a who's who of important 20th century personalities, um, people like Adam Clayton Powell, um, uh, uh, Orson Welles, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Richard Wright, Paul Robeson, um, Kwame Nkrumah, Angela Davis, and and so he in his travels from from first uh, in Harlem, um, um, then becoming a war correspondent, uh, where he's working with the black troops and covering the black troops uh, in Rome, in Italy, and in France. Uh, and and then being kind of caught up in the Red Scare of the late 1940s, early 1950s, which kind of catapulted him to Paris, where he's a part of this kind of lively post-war scene of writers and 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 the like, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, um, and then leaving Paris at the end of the 50s, early 60s, and going to Berlin of all places, 
just at the moment when we have uh, the Berlin Wall going up and the Iron Curtain um, um, rising and, and, and then being able to continue to work throughout this whole time period, doing cartoons for black newspapers like the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier, but also doing cartoons for the communist daily world and also German magazines and journals like uh, Eugen Spiegel and, and the like. So, so this is a guy who you can tell I really got kind of fascinated by. And, and, and for all those cartoons to kind of reflect his, his real commitment to justice and, and, and trying to find a way to create through visual and textual elements, because all of these cartoons have captions, um, finding a way to kind of make a point about, about the conditions that Black people live in, the struggles that Black people experience, and, and, but doing it, ironically, in a humorous and playful way. Yeah, I was uh, I found it amazing to read about how he, some of the cartoons that he did when he was living in Berlin were published both in Germany and in the US in Germany with captions in German in the US with captions in English that were I, my recollection is that they were sometimes more or less exact translations and sometimes not. <laughs> yes, uh, th there's some really interesting ones. There's an image of um, of, a, of a Western couple. I'm not sure if they're American or German, but they're in this environment. Uh, in it looks like Ethiopia with a um, with with people you know really emaciated and and children you know begging for food. And the caption in German reads something to the effect of. Of, of beware of the terrorists is what our president tells us. And then when it was translated or reconceived in English, um, the, the caption says something to the effect of, um, and don't forget what our, our photo teacher taught us to always, you know, take pictures in bright light. <laughs> so, so, so um, he's fascinating in in that he has this kind of um, transatlantic and and multinational um, a career, and depending on where um, the works appear, um, might determine how they they might get translated. But the image is the same. Yeah. And the other artist uh, to whom you give special consideration in the book is Robert Colescott, who you brought up earlier, the uh, American painter. Um, who you describe as being simultaneously an innovative trailblazer and a hapless social observer. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, I actually met Robert uh, Colescott in the uh, late 1970s when I was visiting um, the Bay Area with an artist friend of mine, Margot Humphrey. And at that moment, I, I didn't know much about him, but I was looking at these paintings and these paintings were quite strange. <laughs> I mean, they were, th they were packed with information. They were brightly colored. Um, they kind of moved towards the irreverent. And it was not until years later that I realized that, that his story is another really interesting story in the annals of, of American art. Born in Oakland, California, um, um, his family's background was from uh, Louisiana, New Orleans. And, um, and therefore, he has the, the kind of lineage of the Creoles. And, and black Creoles are really interesting. They, they um, are a mixture of the French and, 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 and as well as the African. And he grew up in a family where his brother, Warrington Colescott, um, who was a little bit more fair-skinned than he was, um, grow, continues in life as a white man. Whereas um, Robert Colescott decides early on to continue his life as a black man. And, uh, and, and after travels, 
um, all through uh, France and North Africa. He teaches for a number of years in Egypt. He finally comes back to to the United States in the late 1960s and again embarks on all of these really kind of wild paintings, um, works that are ambitious in terms of their scale, um, bold in terms of their themes, um, and deeply invested in kind of satirical projects. Um, and uh, again, we can look at these pieces and see that 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 he really understands um, some of those strategies of satire. I'm thinking in particular of his homage to Delacroix, um, Le- Liberty Leading the People. This is a painting he did in 1976, where he looks at um, Delacroix's famous painting of this subject, and he's kind of incorporated um, um, uh, New York skyscrapers in it. Um, He's showing kind of minstrel figures kind of incorporated in it. He even has a picture of himself as one of the devastated um, um, soldiers on the ground. And and he's he's, he's added the tricolors of the French flag, but unlike the Delacroix, he's added the top of the flag to his canvas. And, 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 And it's just an example of how Cole Scott, you know, kind of reimagines, you know, art history. Um, And that's really what he does in a lot of his work. He thinks about the old masters, Picasso, Delacroix, Manet, and he kind of re-envisions these works so that issues of race and sex and politics get interwoven um, all throughout these pieces. I mean, I knew some of Colescott's works before I read your book, and then uh, there I was introduced to some new ones as I was reading your book. And it is um it is a challenge they're a challenge both visually and conceptually you know you sort of wonder if you're not only understanding the basics of what he's trying to say but really possibly understanding the full scope of what he's trying to say and i think you encapsulated in your book pretty perfectly right that no single definition or set criteria can sufficiently explain the stinging yet revelatory consequences of his work nor its critical appeal well i'll also add that 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 part of what makes robert colescott colescott is the timing of his career, you know, kind of coming at the end of the 20th century when uh, postmodernism um, has uh, a forum uh, in the world of art. Um, it's also his multiple art niches. I'm thinking of him being an African-American artist. Um, his work's kind of operating under the realm of neo-expressionism, um, his, him being a West Coast artist. I mean, um, there's a kind of a rhythm and energy to the West Coast that's not what's going on on, on the East Coast and among New Yorkers. And then finally, it's his satire. It's his satire. Um, the ability in his work to, to point fingers, to cast aspersions, and not just pointing fingers and casting aspersions towards um, those who deserve it in his mind, but sometimes he turns the arrow onto himself. And that's really what kind of makes his work stand out and really distinguishes him as someone who realizes that that in some ways he's just as implicated uh, in um, the world of, 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 of absurdity as, um, as all the other places that he's pointing at. Another... Uh... Um, finger pointer that you bring up in the chapter about Cole Scott is Richard Pryor. Um, how did it occur to you to talk about Richard Pryor's work in the con or uh, in the context of of Robert Colescott's? Well, well, Robert Colescott himself um, mentions um, Richard Pryor on in, in a couple of instances, and um, and and identifies him as as someone who who he is moved by and whose um, comedy. Uh, and pathos 
are 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 just right on. They 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 hit um, their target uh, in a way that uh, that that works. And but I would guess that part of the reason why Robert Colescott is also enamored with Richard Pryor is what I just said a few minutes ago that that when you hear Pryor's comedy routines, uh, which are outrageous, which are sometimes quite <laughs> um, blue in in the material, they they there's a touch of humanity in them. There's there's an element of poignancy in them that 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 means that we're not just being mean or or smarmy that we're really trying to touch deep on on issues that that matter to all of us uh, and 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 I think it's that hum, hum, human humanitarian component uh, of of uh, Cole Scott um, and 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 Pryor that kind of makes them brothers so to speak yeah. And I, I want to conclude here by talking about how, you know, the, the publication of your book this year is really prescient coming out as it is at a moment when Americans' private conversations, as well as many of our broader cultural and societal discussions are revolving around questions of the treatment and roles and history of Black Americans. A larger than ever coalition of people are demanding a reckoning with institutional racism and specific acts of racism. Um, are there artists or artworks or ideas that you bring up in this book that you feel have been recontextualized in any way, given the backdrop of the year 2020? Well, uh, yes. And uh, I was thinking about a couple um, there's there's another painting by Cole Scott called Knowledge of the Past is the Key to the Future, some afterthoughts on discovery. And 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 it's it's one of these like packed paintings that has lots and lots of information in it. There's like an image of Emmett Till, there's an image of, of Abraham Lincoln, there's an image of Christopher Columbus, um, there are images of conquistadors and Indians. And uh, it, it, this is one of these paintings, and the and the title in particular that reminds us that 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 this issue of the past and this issue of discovery is 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 highly contested. And I thought about that work in relationship to. The, these kind of recent controversies that have been swirling around public monuments, um, the tearing down of Christopher Columbus statues, the attacks against images of Abraham Lincoln emancipating the slaves. And, and so I would argue that, that, that what Robert Colescott's painting does, and he did this in 1986 before any of this stuff was happening, is that he understood that, that we have to understand the past and at the same time, when we really understand it and take it into our consciousness, um, it's going to emerge and, and rear up all sorts of complicated and perhaps messy issues. So, so, so he's all for the history, but he's also saying, be prepared for what you might, what you might discover. Um, another artist um, or another artwork that I've been thinking about that's in the book is a, is a cartoon by Ali Harrington um, called Practice Makes Perfect. And, and it's like a multi-paneled uh, a cartoon that starts off with a little black baby being chased by um, a rat. And then there's another cartoon of that same little baby boy being chased by a group of angry white boys. And then there's another uh, square of the boy being a little older, being chased 
by the police. And then there's another square of that same young man getting older and older being chased by the Ku Klux Klan. And then there's a final square of that little boy winning uh, the Olympics uh, track meet, <laughs> I guess, in Berlin. I'm not sure. But, 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 but what Ali Harrington is doing there is using this metaphor of running and, and, and being on the move and, and making a powerful kind of statement about, you know, the kind of the travails and, and the challenges of being a black man, you know, in America and how, and how it keeps you kind of on the go. You know, uh, the final piece that I'll just mention, uh, since we were talking about Philip Gustin, uh, is a, a, a piece by Jeff Donaldson, and it's from a book that he did in 1964 called the Civil Rights Yearbook, and it shows it's kind of it, it has no caption, but it shows two Klansmen. And one of the Klansmen uh, is um, a white Klansman who you can see his face and he's he's shocked because the other Klansman has taken off his hood and it's a black man. <laughs> and, and and this is a routine, a joke that, that pops up a lot. In fact, Spike Lee writes about, uh, rather does a film about this called Black Klansman, you know, that was done a few years ago. But here's Jeff Donaldson in 1964 at the height of the civil rights movement, kind of playing with this idea of, of this kind of racist kind of veil um, of, of the Ku Klux Klan and really kind of making light of the fact that, that, that once you reveal these hoods or take off the hoods, you're going to find things that, that, you, you, that you didn't count on. And part of me wishes that 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 the folks who organized the Gustin show might include that Jeff Donaldson piece as a as a subtle reminder of of not only the horror of the Klan, but in some ways how one can empower themselves by not being so taken aback by it and 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 really using the tools of satire to to liberate yourself. Yeah. Well. Thank you again for joining me to talk about your book today. Um, we're so proud to have the opportunity to publish it. We've only just touched on some of the some of the artworks and artists and issues that you talk about. It is deeply intelligent. It's deeply researched, um, and it's a really important and and thorny topic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Again, the book we've been discussing is Going There, Black Visual Satire. It can be purchased now wherever books are sold. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with the whole podcast series and all the latest from our blog and our authors.